This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Charlie Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Welcome to CityCast Denver. I'm Paul Caroli, and you are listening to Mayoral Madness, our effort to get to know all 17 candidates who want to be Denver's next mayor. Today, I'm speaking with Thomas Wolfe. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you. It kind of overlaps with almost March Madness here. That's what we were thinking. All kinds of madness available this year. Circus or madness, a metaphor very appropriate with umpteen candidates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so Thomas, I know it's campaign season, uh, the elections maybe month and a half away. I'm sure you're going all over the city talking to people. Is there anywhere that you've gone to that's new to you or a new place that you really love? I have, I, I get out on my bike a lot. So I'm kind of have been off four corners of the city for the most part. I've lived in quite a few different neighborhoods, I've gone to grad school here um you know kind of our main artery uh from a biking standpoint is cherry creek uh that path and the and the plat that then gets you out to the the mountains or out into out east into some of the drainages um so i've seen a lot of different neighborhoods i actually did some renovation with a uh on on our current home and it kind of got me back into some of the industrial neighborhoods that i hadn't been in in a while um, kind of down in the Santa Fe Valley and the industrial stuff there. And it was uh, when I was more active in that space, there weren't uh, multifamily development and microbreweries in some of those neighborhoods. So kind of an interesting update from that regard. Uh, well, let's get right into it here. Um, I have to admit, Thomas, I wasn't familiar with you before you made the ballot, but I, I've since learned that two things you're an investment banker and that you ran for mayor once before back in 2011 when Hancock won his first term. Um, at the time I, I found this article where you told Westward that your, your parents instilled in you a desire to serve the public. I think they were asking why you wanted to run for mayor when you had such a, a successful career. Um, so my question is since 2011, how have you served the public? Sure. I've been on a couple of uh, nonprofit boards in Denver, one being the MCA, which was a quite an odyssey. We went from Sakura Square over in kind of Rhino-ish um, to our current uh, great building just south of Union Station. And uh, that was a massive undertaking and a, and a great outcome. And then since then, uh, it was the chair board chair of a group called Mile High 360, which is an after-school program uh, for sixth graders on trying to get uh, kids focused on life skills and uh, health, nutrition, the environment, you name it, but mainly on pathways to college. And, and the uh, sleight of hand we use there is to get them engaged in a sport that was uh, previously squash 
and we've switched it to cycling so that we can scale a little bit better and serve more students. That's currently um, connected to a program at West High right now. Okay. Um, well, you mentioned the MCA, that's the Museum of Contemporary Art for listeners who aren't familiar. Um, I am realizing an oversight. I don't have any questions for you about art. I've got to hear about that. Artists have had a really tough time in this city the last few years. As mayor, how would you support the arts community? Yeah. As you can imagine, we've been deluged with questionnaires. And they're, I, I think, uh, from a, like the college you mean students. You the candidates? Have, uh, yeah. I, as okay. a col college students have, there's a common app. I would raise my hand and vote for that in the next cycle for sure. But um, some of them are, are longer and some are shorter. But I got one from the art community that was just a blast to fill out. And um, our, our connection to art is that um, my wife, who's from Oslo, her, her ancestors were, you know, starving artists, bohemians. Um, her father actually was commissioned to do the Carl Johan statue in front of the um, palace. So you'd think he was a very successful artist, but um, he really had nothing to show for it. So it's been our kind of uh, passion project to help um, emerging artists that, you know, still struggle and, and still starve uh, by supporting their work. And, you know, like with the MCA, getting a venue to show their work. And um, I think there's some opportunities within city uh, structures to pr to provide um, uh, communal space for either the, the product or habitation, as well as um, I think when we turn around how we're funding Denver Health, um, that we can offer um, some health insurance, either subsidy or full ride to artists to, to make the city a little bit more affordable for them. Do you have a favorite local artist you'd want to recommend? <laughs> I'm not going to pronounce his name the right way, but I have uh, been pretty active. Well, I had portraits done on my children at, at a young age, uh, you know, kind of the age of innocence by, um, now I'm going to forget his name, but I, I got to him through the Art Students League, which I think is a terrific treasure in our community. And then... Um, a little less age of innocence at, you know, kind of after high school graduation. And that was by Louis, I think it's pronounced Ferrara, who uh, just has a really unique uh, uh, approach and, and is a wonderful portrait, portrait artist. Louis Ferrara. All right. I, I think I'll be Googling his name later. <laughs> Not familiar. Um, let's get back into policy here. I want to talk about housing. Uh, it's a huge issue in this race. My understanding from some comments you've made is that you're more of a supply side guy, that you'd favor less government intervention. Is that correct? Um, with some qualifications, sure. Go ahead. Qualify away. So I have, you know, I get painted as the uh, cold-hearted investment banker. I typically like to deflect that and say I'm a money seller. And uh, on the back of how efficient the capital markets are in the U.S., we have the lowest cost of capital. And uh, that's driven the most productive assets in the world. So slander me all you want. The outcome has been terrific. Um, but before that, you don't, you're not born a, a investment banker or a money seller. You are, you know, you got you to gotta find your way there. So I've been, you know, I started construction at the very lowest, uh, lowest rung on the ladder, um, improved my skills to where I was a carpenter and I was eventually a licensed general contractor in the city. From there, I kind of shifted gears after 
Well, in, in undergrad, I worked science and, and med tech research, including organ retrieval, which is a whole uh, different rabbit hole to get into. And then grad school, I did an MBA in finance. So that led me towards understanding you know, efficiencies in capital allocation, uh, how the market looks at things and how the market, how capital takes risk. With respect to affordable housing, these hands have built, I've worked in a nonprofit in, in the Lower East Side where these hands built, um, actually drove nails for affordable housing. This mine worked on as a controller to um, structure the land trust and the tax exemptions and abatements that allowed it to happen, as well as accounted for the entire thing. Those properties are still active and 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 still are uh, performing in perpetuity like we we intended them to. So have some pretty good depth in the space and uh, would like to bring that to Denver for sure. So just for an example of what you would do for Denver on this issue, uh, beyond your experience, the city passed a affordable housing measure last year that required developers to designate a certain amount of new builds as affordable for certain bands of the area median income. Um, this was quite controversial at the time. Um, I know the apartment association now is saying that it slowed down building, but proponents say it was necessary because we need more affordable housing. What's your position on the affordable housing measure Denver passed last year? Well, the predominant amount of housing that is going to come to the market most efficiently, efficiently in our economy is from the private sector. That, and that capital can deploy anywhere in the world. So it needs to take a look at both risk and reward. And to the extent that you're doing things that are increasing the risk and decreasing the reward, you're, it's gonna, there's less capital that's going to show up. So that, that, I don't think we want to go down that path. The other issue are some of the risks that we so, can- Sorry, so you're saying no? You're saying you'd, you'd want to work to repeal it? No. What I'm saying is the provision of housing is best done by the private sector. Um, we've had rules on affordable housing where there's a certain amount required that hasn't been put to work in the proper way by the city, because when your city is tasked with doing something like that, they do it more costly and less time effectively, less efficiently. And that's the cost of having government do it as opposed to the private sector. Of course, to have the private sector do it, the cost is profits. But this, I, but when the private sector does it, there's a competition for those profits. So you keep getting a tighter and tighter delivery and a better end product. Anyway, back to things that I know I can do immediately are pressure that there's a risk out there that is, is a straightforward um, answer, which is it speeding the time that, uh, that it takes to get through planning and zoning and building. You know, that, 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 should, be a, that should probably be a six-week turnaround at most. Um, the, the thing that people miss is that the capital that's participating already is safeguarding itself so that the, these buildings are done to code and within zoning and everything else. That is a much bigger um, enforcement than our city ever will be. Um, our city has been late to bring technology to bear on this, and it really should just be streamlined and delivered, um, you know, in a, in a much faster way because that's, you know, the meter starts ticking on the capital that's looking to invest, and that just costs more. Uh, another obvious one is that the builder's construction defect has, I think, a seven-year uh, liability or tail to it which is uh, a huge detractor from kind of that middle bit of housing that, you know, kind of discombobulates the, the ecosystem of, you know, throughout. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I have to go back and press you a little bit on this affordable housing measure because it was so controversial. And as mayor, this is the kind of thing you would be making a decision on that would affect the rest of us. So what would you do with that measure? Would you work to repeal it? Would you strengthen it? Would you make the area median income requirements lower, higher? No, th- I think those are those are already that there's already a calculation for that that I think works. The I the my own it it's in place. Um, I'm not gonna. I I don't think I can uh, unwind that. But my my statement is that we need to do things to encourage capital to show up and execute on that. I think what we've done in the past has been horrific in that. We've we've done this heavy lifting to get affordable housing, and then we have it land trusted in a way that it has to remain uh, permanently affordable housing. And I think that you can see benefits to doing that throughout the city, you know, so that there's always a, an affordable because it it impacts so many different things. If there's that affordable base there, then that then then that doesn't put the pressure on the transit. It doesn't, you know, you have a there's a there's kind of a diversity to that neighborhood that otherwise wouldn't be there. I think there's an opportunity, you know, so let's fast forward to what your next question is going to be is probably how that ties into gentrification. And I think gentrification, there can be a solution within this, within within this budget that allows people to stay within their homes and 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 set a ceiling on what their expenses could be relative to property tax as a in a trade-off that the city then participates in the upside equity from a number or that the city has a right to put that property into its land trust and its afford and in its affordable inventory. I'm not sure I understood much of that. Sorry. Could you explain that the way you would explain to a say a city council person who doesn't have a degree in advanced economics? Sure. So someone you'd want to be persuading to go your way. So so grandma lives in a house that she paid um you know that she I can go for a house that I bought on Hooker Street. I bought a house on Hooker Street in 1991, um, my wife and I did, uh, for $31,500, okay? Uh, I have friends that thought that was a a crazy wild thing in a a frontier market. Um, But then they have since stocked this property up till now, which is, you know, 30 some years. I think it's maybe a half a million dollar home. So if you've tracked what the property tax was on $31,000 to what it is on a half million dollar home, if grandma still lived there and was at the same means or the same income, right, um, this this would be start to becoming very unaffordable for her. To the extent that we wanted to get her to where her property tax was affordable and what that would equate to as appraised value, okay, we could lock that in right there. Okay, and then your city would participate. It's like the city, the city basically has that property tax on accrual and then could decide whether to own that property or whether to take proceeds on what to do if in in the event of a final sale. Does that help? Is that closer? It helped a little bit, but I don't I still don't know if I'm there. Um, We may have to talk more about this at some point, but let's move on. Why do you want to be mayor? Um. That usually starts us all off. You know, it's uh, it's just an obvious one. It has to be that you that you love Denver. If you don't love Denver, you're in it for the wrong reason. But you also, you know, it brings in that you love the state of Colorado. You love our flawed but ever evolving and world leading uh, United States of America. And uh, 
And I always think of my knucklehead buddy of mine says, you know, this is still my favorite planet. So you want to serve and you want to help all four of those get better. And the problem is, I, I think we're on a, a different track of getting better. And I would prefer to live in a, a safe, clean, smart city. And our city is not going in that direction. Why do you think you'd be a good mayor? Uh, because it, it requires uh, strong, competent leadership. And we're, we're in the middle of a, it's not, it's not obvious to everybody, but we're very much in the middle of a humanitarian crisis, which is encampments. And, uh, people aren't aware of, of what that's doing to property values. And the, the second order impact of the knock on of property values is that the property tax revenue, um, is 50% of DPS's budget. It's about 11% of my budget as your, as your Denver mayor. So I'm sure you're on board with me. I bet you'd raise your hand if I said, are you interested in, in, re, in maintaining funding for DPS schools? I'm pretty sure I can get everybody in my boat on that one, right? But the next thing I say is, please let me tell you why we have to end encampments. And it's not just because it's impacting property taxes. It's not just because they've been illegal for 10 years. It's not just because it's, it's making our city very unsafe and filthy, but the main reason we need to do it is it's be inhumane to not shelter this, this portion of our population. It's inhumane. It's even immoral. It's, you know, we have the means to do it. The census says it's about 2,000 um, individuals. These are Denver's neediest. To, to kick the can down the road and neglect it and try to have a patchwork of NGOs and faith-based organizations uh, handle this is ridiculous. It's immoral. It's inhumane. We have to act now. And to the extent that we haven't is just mind boggling. Hmm. It's interesting you bring up the morality of the situation. Cause I think, I mean, I mean, obviously this issue really sparks a lot of conversation, a lot of different perspectives on this, but that one particular note, uh, reminds me of, uh, something I saw on your website where you were describing your plan for, um, attacking the, attacking this, this issue of, of homelessness in our city. I'd say um, embracing. Mm -hmm. And you, and you wrote, uh, quote, zero encampments will be tolerated. And within my first year in office, all encampments will be confronted. I was curious. I wonder, how do you imagine those confrontations to look? Uh, well, since I've had those confrontations myself, since I've had three bikes stolen, a phone, and would you believe a ping pong table, I've been through encampments. I foraged through town on my way to work from, you know, uh, 5th and Columbine to 14th and Blake. And, you know, I don't, I get tired of the bike pass. So I come through Congress Park, Capitol Hill, Golden Triangle, upper downtown, lower downtown. And for the last three years, you're very much immersed in it. So I've already dealt with that just crossing streets or getting through bike lanes or you name it. But what I see of our our paid city employees who are tasked with this, and of course it's a heavy lift, we need it's a triage, and we need to use the right resource for the problem. Um, if you look at the census of this two thousand population, it breaks evenly between uh, mentally ill, chemically dependent, and criminal. I mean, those are, that's what the numbers say. Obviously, those first two. The response needs to be clinicians and, and health profession and social workers, health professionals, you name it. I think you kind of want to have the police officers there as backup. And for that third cohort, that's obviously a police matter, right? 
So the conversation is, hey, our bad. We haven't enforced laws over the last three years. So maybe you didn't know that what you're doing is, is breaking these laws. We'll go ahead and have a truce here, armistice, and tell you that you are breaking these laws. You can no longer trespass. You can't have, you know, possession. Go down the laundry list of, of the laws that are being broken. Would you be interested? You have to leave this space. We are offering you shelter if you so choose. Okay. And it, if not, they say, no, we're going to go somewhere else. Okay. The next time, and we have to identify these people because, you know, anonymity is on their side. Living off the grid within our, our city is in their favor. So to identify them, to say, okay, that's fine. But if we encounter you again in the same situation, that that is a criminal offense, okay? And you and we will and it will be a it'll be a police response as opposed to the opportunity for shelter or um, the social or clinician helping you. So you're saying if someone is found in an encampment two times that they'd be arrested? Yes. Okay. Let's move on. I have a question for you from a listener. Amy C writes. I'd be interested to know how much he'd be willing to budget for Dottie's Vision Zero, that's the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, complete streets and safe routes to school programs. What ideas do you have for making Denver a safer and more convenient place to walk, bike, roll, bus, and train, i.e. to get around some way other than by car? Well, just to, to set a little context, back to my father and his example, um, uh, I'm from a large family. I have two brothers and two sisters. My father had a colleague of the same who passed away at a very young age. And when that happened, my, we had two cars in our family. My father sold his car and bike to work round trip for the rest of his life um, and became, you know, bike geek, did rag bride, which was the bike ride across our home state, drug all our kids along it. Um, so we I just was always a self-propelled uh, transit person. Fast forward now, I put more mileage on my bike, you know, either road bikes, but also more kind of just from a commute, commuter standpoint every year than I do on, a, on our one car. So I am a huge proponent of a walkable, bikeable city. I have stated that in numerous questionnaires. It's a lot of fun. I've been at the I was at Bicycle Colorado's recent mobility. Mm, I think what she's interested in is hearing some of your ideas. What would you do? Yeah. So uh, the uh, I was going back to the the sidewalk woman, um, which I followed. I actually have a GoFundMe out to help get her reimbursed for the twenty four grand that she of her own money that she put into that campaign. Um, Sorry, the sidewalk woman. Who are you talking about? I think her name is Jill Lanacor. With Den- she, it's a ah Jill Locantore. Locantore, excuse me, from Denver Streets Partnership. Please go to my GoFundMe to help her get reimbursed for her hard-earned dollars she put into that. I think that should be collectively borne by the city. Um, obviously, great cities need great sidewalks. Um, the biggest thing I would do, which I would do in all departments, is do an asset inventory of what we actually have. Okay, and then the next step is to say. I, it's hard for me as a city to go out and tell other people to do this before I'm compliant myself. So I live by Congress Park, and for me to walk over to the coffee shop at Botanic Gardens, the su- the southern part of Congress Park doesn't have a sidewalk, nor does the part running up along uh, Josephine. So it's like let's let's get all of our green space and our footprint compliant, bikeable, and safe. Okay, 
And then let's put, let's, you know, lead by example and push the balance of residential and commercial owners the same thing. Specific examples to your person, to your, your, your questioner. I mean, down to a micro level is I have owned a uh, parking lot before and I had to do a curb cut and the cold fusion that goes into getting that done is unbelievable. But what you don't realize is all the prior curb cuts that don't, that have, that pay no attention to anything but cars. The only way you're going to get commercial people to change that is to, uh, charge them for that curb cut so that then sidewalks and corners are, are safer. Okay. So charge property owners for curb cuts and do an asset inventory. Well, it's, I mean, that's, that's, I was just trying to sum up the two ideas. I think I heard there were do an asset inventory of transit options and bike lanes and sidewalks and uh, require property owners to pay for curb cuts, or are you saying would the city be responsible for paying for the curb cuts? No, it be it would be income to the city fee base that could then be used in the budget for uh, mobility. I see, and, and and the you know the big the biggest rationale for the um, inventory is that I, I don't know I heard a woman a couple of years ago who's the port who's Portland's bike director who's very nationally acclaimed, and her whole comment is about choke points, which. I completely agree with myself, and it's my daughter's pet peeve is when we're on a on a bike lane, and then there's the sign that says bike lane ends. And my daughter says, bike lanes, what I mean, what are we supposed to do here? I mean, transit doesn't end. There has to be, you know, the, the choke point has to be solved. Right. Uh well, Thomas, we've got a couple of well, we've got a few questions that we're asking all the candidates. We're picking a couple for each person. One I picked for you. Casa Bonita. Are you familiar with the restaurant? I am. Great restaurant or the greatest restaurant? Uh, the, the food got to a point where it was risky at best. Great bones and great facility and great location uh, that the Southport guys showed up to be the savior. I don't think you could ask for a better, uh, you know, more civic pride and the right, you know, when there's hobbyists that take over a restaurant, you know, you're in good shape. Makes it pretty tough for other folks to compete against them, but uh, definitely uh, will restore a community gem. Absolutely. So Thomas, part of the reason that we're doing this project on our show of trying to interview everybody running for mayor is because we really want to hear a vision for Denver's future. What does the next era of Denver look like under a mayor wolf? Five years, 10 years, what's your big picture vision? Yeah. In the, in the business culture, there's these, or just business talks, there's a lot of people that talk about, oh, it's this scrappy little division that punches above its weight, where it, you know, does more than it should. And I think Denver is always kind of punched below its weight. It, it presents with just such, uh, a natural advantage, um, terrific communities, diversity. It's just an active, vibrant, interesting city. But I think, it has it has suffered from, you know, leadership that, that could have bigger visions and 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 realize that we should be, you know, kind of an international mecca to realize how a city can really work. And I think one of the um, the reasons that that doesn't happen is this office has been treated as a stepping stone for, uh, you know, a city councilman or a state senator that wants to get to Congress. So this is a stepping off point. And that's them acting for themselves 
as opposed to acting for Denver's, you know, Denver constituents, us, right? In, in, the, in the business world, that is a flunk of the fiduciary test. That is moral hazard. That's actually criminal, okay? I will not run for any other office. I've already lived in D.C., have no interest in returning there. I will do things that um, upset the status quo and confront vested interests, which others won't do because they need that constituency to get to the next spot. So I think it will be a whole different look at all of these conversations as to when we're procuring things as a city, um, when we're when we're doing large, you know, large projects, uh, are those done at the best terms for Denver? You know, it's not it's 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 all within that lens as opposed to are, if I do it this way, are those guys going to be with me for the next? And that's and that includes you know, where there's collective bargaining with all the different agencies. Wait, what do you mean by that? The collective bargaining? Well, that, that, that it actually be collectively bargained as opposed to rubber stamped. You know, if I, if I confront those, those, those people on the other, I, I just sat down with those, I forget, it's the stagehands union. And they were quite shocked that a free market capitalist such as myself would be willing to or would encourage uh, collective bargaining from these different groups that interact with the city. And I said, I think it's by right that they can. I think the city doesn't allow it with some municipal employees. I'm happy for them to have it or I, I'm indifferent. Right. But I told them, careful what you wish for, because I will be bar. You know, I'm you know, I'm a, I'm a, I, I enjoy sport. I enjoy winning. I enjoy being competitive and I'm going to get turns that are winning terms for Denver. I'd like to see Denver get back to winning. Thomas Wolf, where can listeners learn more about you? Uh, the most efficient place is on uh, our website, which is wolfdenvermayor.com. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mayoral Madness. What we hope is a 17-part interview series with all the candidates on the ballot to be Denver's next mayor. We're planning to publish these episodes each weekend leading up to Election Day on April 4th, and we'll be providing more news and analysis during the week. Subscribe to CityCast Denver and learn more about Mayoral Madness at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back soon with even more mayoral candidates who want to lead the city.